Welcome to day 24 of the story that changes everything. Today's readings are Exodus chapters 18 through 20. Here's some thoughts to guide your reading for today. Exodus chapter 18 opens with a family reunion. In the previous chapter, the Amalekites were violent and unwelcoming to Israel, this group of new refugees in the wilderness. But the Midianites are welcoming. They're Moses' family. And so a reunion between Moses and his in-laws takes place. However, more than just Moses reuniting with his family is at work here. When Jethro hears about how God, Yahweh, delivered the Israelites from bondage, he too worships and adopts this understanding of God's action and activity in the world as his very own. We might think of him as the first convert to adopting the redemption story of Exodus as his own, even though he himself was not physically present in the event. What happened to Israel now by faith has happened to Jethro too. The text describes Moses' stress as a leader. Just because God delivered the people from the oppressive structures of Egypt does not mean that they can now live with no structure. When Jethro sees both the exhaustion of his son-in-law Moses and the frustration of the people, he makes a wise and prudent suggestion for delegating authority, a suggestion that Moses quickly puts into place. Perhaps this text can serve to remind us that just because wisdom, especially for leadership, does not emerge directly from God or from God's leadership, does not necessarily mean it's unwise or unhelpful. Jethro's advice makes me feel much better about several of the leadership books on my shelf in my library. Perhaps there's wisdom there that God's people can glean that can be directed toward living into God's mission more effectively, even if it doesn't come directly from a godly source. Chapter 19 opens at Mount Sinai, where the people will stay for the next 11 months and receive the law or Torah from God through Moses. We will be in the law for a while now. The next several chapters and books will weave together both narrative and the giving of the law. So perhaps we should think a little bit about the nature of how the law or Torah functions for God's people. First, the law is always rooted in relationship. Like the rules parents set up for their children, the law is not intended to be a burden upon the people, but a blessing. If they follow the law, they will live their best life. Secondly, the law is not the way to salvation. The way, in a sense, is salvation. When I was growing up in the church, I think I thought that the law was a kind of obstacle course God set up to see who could get to salvation or heaven on the other side. In other words, I thought the point of the law was to try to earn one's way into God's favor, something we clearly cannot do, so that's where grace comes in later in the story. But that's not the way the text thinks about the law. The Torah, or law, connects people back to God's created order. It it realigns their life with the grain of the universe. Therefore, to live the law is to find life, and thus to live salvation. Third, the law is a form of witness— If Israel will learn to embody the beauty of the law, then other nations will see the truthfulness and righteousness of their life and be drawn to the light of God radiating from this good and just life that this people centered in Torah embody. If we can understand the law this way, then we will understand the beautiful language in this text of God bringing the people out of bondage on eagles' wings. Verse 6 articulates the kind of people God wants Israel to be. He's making them into a royal priesthood, and like the priests, they will offer and reflect the brokenness of the world to God for healing, and then they will turn around like a good priest and mediate God's transforming presence to the world. 
and he'll make them a holy nation. They will be a people or nation, but they will not act or operate like all the other nations. Their purpose will not be like other nations trying to secure their own survival, but instead they will be a nation that is the light that brings all nations back to a justified relationship with the Creator. Again, this otherness or holiness of God is good, but not safe. In the same way that God has chosen Israel to mediate his reconciliation to the world, God has uniquely chosen Moses to be the mediator to the people. Everybody else, stay off the mountain. Chapter 20 is the first articulation of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, which obviously holds a unique place in the law and certainly in the Christian imagination and perhaps even in the imagination of the entire Western culture. There is much we could say about these commandments. They're rooted in relationship and story. The commands open with God's affirmation of his rescue of the people from bondage. Following these commands are one way to honor their unique relationship with God. Nevertheless, as important as they are, they are by no means exhaustive. Many, many more commands will be added to them, and they are general enough that both the Jewish and Christian traditions have expanded them greatly. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will expand on these basic laws in ways that get to their true intention. So let's think about them. Command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. This relationship Yahweh has established with Israel is unique and it's exclusive. Idolatry will be a constant temptation for the people as it is for us. This command will lead the people not only to a high monotheism that there is only one God, but I believe it will ultimately even shape their views of monogamy, commitment to each other as well. Command number two, you will not make any graven images. The creator Yahweh cannot be displayed in material ways nor confined to a particular place. It's also important to note that Israel can't make images of their God because God has created and is forming his people to be his images to the world. We're created in his image. Command number three, do not use the Lord's name in vain. This is a command primarily about God's reputation in the world. Whatever the world will know about Yahweh, they will know because of Yahweh's people. So don't misuse God's name or sully God's reputation in the world. Do you hear me? Command number four, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The command itself roots us in our createdness. We are creatures who are not called by God to burn ourselves out, even for good purposes, but we're called to find the rhythms of rest and work appropriate to our finiteness. Work is important, but people will always be of more value than what they do or what they have. And creation will always have more value than what it can produce on our behalf. Command number five, honor your father and mother. Although this command may also include instruction to children, it's likely a command meant for adult children. God's people will be a people of honor and care, even when those in our community, because of age or other limitations, are not able to contribute to the community like they used to, or in the ways that maybe others are capable of. We will still care for them. No one in God's people can be discarded. Command number six, do not kill. This law is much debated as to what kind of killing does it pertain to. Is it always wrong to kill? Are there circumstances in which it's permitted by God? Perhaps this law is very general for a reason. It invites God's people to struggle with the inherent value of life given to people by God, and then help us explore how we can find ways to do all we can to protect the dignity and the well-being of all people. Command number seven, do not commit adultery. 
This commands a reminder of how seriously God takes the life of the family and invites us to practice in our most important relationships the fidelity that God offers to us. Command number eight, do not steal. In the ancient world, property was understood as an extension of a person. To violate somebody's things or their family was to violate them. We may not think in that exact same way now, but as anyone who's ever been robbed can tell you, to not honor one another's possessions feels like a violation and constantly disrupts community. Command number nine, do not bear false witness. A people cannot exist where truth no longer can be counted on. There is no possibility for justice where there's no expectation of truth. Command number 10, do not covet. This is an interesting final command to close out the Decalogue. The others are measurable, but exactly how do we know when we or our neighbor has broken the law against coveting? One could argue much of our economic system depends upon making covetousness the norm. This command is more of an invitation, really, than a rule. It's an invitation to live with a certain posture of gratitude toward God and toward one another. The first four laws in the Decalogue have to do with our relationship with God. The last six have to do with how we relate to one another and perhaps even the creation. You can't live justified with God and not live justified with your neighbor. You can't say you love God and then not love your neighbor as well. The rest of the chapter reaffirms the role Moses will embody as the mediator and gives some early rules for worship. The final verse of the chapter may not be the most meaningful life verse to hang on the wall, but it does give some important wisdom for leading worship in a time before underwear became standard for everybody. There's so much to ruminate on in these texts for today. The law is not meant to be a burden, but a gift to help us find true human life. So read these scriptures carefully, looking for things you've never seen before. Listen to what the Spirit might say to you through the scripture today. Journal some of your reflections, questions, and prayers, and pray that God would help you learn to live with the grain of the universe. Our readings for tomorrow are Exodus chapters 21 through 23 and Psalm 11. I'll talk to you tomorrow.